You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Psalm 63 is uh, one of the psalms we're looking at over the summer months. We continue and finish up next week about uh, modern problems that have ancient and more accurately biblical solutions. And uh, this morning we're looking at this short word, pun intended, transcendence. We're looking at the idea that in every human heart there is a longing, there is a need, there is a desire. We've been singing those sort of words, desire words, longing words. There is a desire, a longing and a need for us to be intimately connected and to know who God is, to know who our maker is. There is something in our makeup the Bible puts it in one way to say that eternity, like a seed in the ground, has been planted in our hearts. So we know as we look out into the world that this world is not all there is. There must be more to life than this. And uh, it made me think about a book that was written before I was born. That is possible. Uh, Theodore Rozak, catchy name. Theodore Rozak wrote a number of books in the 1960s and the 1970s. He was a prophetic writer who looked at uh, culture and was able to put his finger on and to identify a number of trends. Here are a few. In the 1960s, he was saying, and uh, not in a dystopian kind of way, he was looking forward to the future in a non-Orwellian uh, type of way. He was saying, in the future, I can see a time where computers are going to be on the rise and computers are going to be really significant in how the world runs. I can see uh, days in the future, said uh, Theodore, where, where people are going to migrate to cities. It's happening. I can see a time where knowledge is going to be more localised. And he's writing in the 1960s and 70s. And yet, albeit he was not a Christian, he said, in us there is an innate understanding that this world is not simply molecules and atoms. There is a irreducible knowledge in our hearts, there's a non-Christian man saying this, that there is the supernatural. It was a time when science was on the up, science was on the rise, everything was being compartmentalised in the world, and yet here's the thinker who said, we know there's more to life than this. Very interesting to read his books. If you just want one, Google megatrends megatrends and it looks some of these big cultural phenomena that now we take for granted here's a guy in the 1960s 50 odd years ago that he's saying this is going to happen and it has very interesting and he says also if you deny the fact that there is a god that there is a transcendent power a force 
and that's a non-biblical word, but if there's a transcendent power that rules the world, that created the world, if you acknowledge that, well, it will change your life. If you choose not to acknowledge that, well, it would be like putting your thumb into old faithful. Now, boys and girls, old faithful is an old geezer. Let me give you context for those two words. Is an old and ancient geezer, not a person. If you jump on a plane and go to somewhere like Denver, then head north, you can go to Yellowstone National Park. And in Yellowstone National Park, there are geezers, not old men. That means a hot water spring beneath the ground. And you can almost set your watch by it every half an hour, 40 minutes, since the year 2001. Old faithful has been spewing forth hundreds of feet into the sky hot water you've got to stay away from it it's that hot and uh, Theodore Roosevelt was saying if you do not ignore sorry if you do ignore the reality of God if you do ignore the reality of the supernatural it's like trying to stick your thumb into old faithful the truth will spill out in loads of different ways but it won't be biblical because he wasn't biblical and you won't be able to stop it this reality that there's a supernatural power, that there's more to life than what we can see, taste, and touch, that we thought about in the book of Ecclesiastes towards the start of the year, is a deep longing in our heart. You can't put a thumb in Yellowstone National Park's Old Faithful. You can't put a cork in it. This desire will come out in a whole variety of different ways. And Psalm 63 says it's like a thirst. It's like a thirst that Dave and Peter has explained. It's, it's a thirst that we cannot quench Anywhere else, not even Coca-Cola does it. Water is just a, a symbolic emblem physically of a deep spiritual need we have in our hearts. And David puts his finger on it in verse 1 and tells us a couple of things if we want to chop this psalm into two. The human heart longs, needs transcendence. It needs an understanding of the supernatural. It's what we're made for. And then David says, this is where you find the true definition of that longing. This is where we're heading. So the human heart needs transcendence. Verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there's no water. That's the, that's the great setting for this psalm. It's a physical human needs. Soul thirsting verse 1. Body longing, verse 1. It's a redundant way, it's a repetitive way of saying the same thing. Human body, male, female, boy, girl, old, young, we are connected, we're longing for a connection to the God who made us, who formed us. David is not saying in a kind of a mental, esoteric kind of way, I need to make a construct of the person of God so that I understand how the world works. He's not saying that in a remote way at all. I don't need a God hypothesis. To quote Dawkins, what he's saying is, my soul needs transcendence. I can go up on a mountaintop and put my arms out. And some people say you feel closer to nature there. Some people think, actually, if you go to the wilderness, that's where I can connect to God. Some people say, if I go to India and I look at the, an ancient religion, that's where I connect to God. The Bible says that's what we're made for. We're made for an intimate, loving relationship, not with a spirit who's out there, but with a loving Father who's revealed himself to us. And so Psalm 1, David says, O oh God, you are my God. 
Boys and girls, this is for you. So, it's already been said, whether you're an English fighting in, a, in northern Egypt or whether you're a German fighting and you accidentally drink salt water, there is a longing. We need physical thirst to be quenched. And if you've not had water for three or more days, your body starts to do strange things to you. Psychologically, you start to think of uh, in the desert where there's no trees, there's no water, your mind plays tricks on you, doesn't it? And you have mirage experiences. Physically, you start to do strange things. I'm going to eat that cactus because I've heard there's some watery-like substance in it. So you get your hands in there, avoiding the prickles the best you can. You might eat grubs that you find on the forest floor that are just yucky and hideous, but you bite into it because you're longing for moisture on your cracked and dry lips. Here's David and he's saying, verse 1, there's a real physical need for water, but that is not an end to itself. That is a sign of a deep spiritual longing that we are made for. We're designed for a connection with the God who made us. And without that desire being met, it's like that thirst that you can't quench and you start to do very strange things. When Rozak was writing these books 50 years ago and then after the outbreak of uh, World War II and after its conclusion, a lot of strange things were written. People were saying, oh, the understanding of God and who he is, a, a person that we can know, well, that's very foreign, but an understanding of the stars, well, that was prevalent in Egyptian and ancient thought as well. But after World War II, there was a, a discovery that people were, were thinking would happen that once science had answered the questions of where we came from and who we are, it would replace the mystery of a thunderclap. It would explain how a lightning bolt earth to the ground. Science would disprove God, and then we could go on to greater human flourishing. After World War II, something very interesting happened. It's a true statement that when people stop believing in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, it means they believe in anything. And all the writers and thinkers were proved wrong. As science grew, so did the number of religions in the UK. After World War II, 800 new religions were founded. It wasn't that science, it wasn't that World War II had so proved the, uh, the fact that God didn't exist. When people stopped believing in the God of the Bible, although that did increase in some places, thinking of Billy Graham missions and things like that, Billy Graham, what was interesting was that people started believing in anything. When people stopped believing in the God of the Bible, it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they believe in anything. And that really proves the point of verse 1. Whether you believe in the God of the Bible here this morning, if you're not yet a Christian but you're interested, what David says holds fast. This huge increase in um, the New Age movement that you saw after the 1950s. Huge increase in the number of recognised religions, whether they were traditional or non-traditional, after World War II. We all have, verse 1, a deep thirst, a deep need for transcendence it's a basic need just like water in the desert and the bible's answer to that question is well that shows that you were made by someone else and you were made for him you were built for him and until you know him you will always be thirsty you will always be restless a human heart we long 
for transcendence. So where do we find it? That's the rest of the psalm. That's the second point. Where do we find it? How it's found. First of all, first of all, David says, if you want to find God, if we want to use that language, you have to understand that knowing God is not a means to an end. Knowing God, enjoying him, that must be an end in and of itself. It has to be your highest priority. Verse 3, David says, Your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. Peter referred to it very helpfully. We need to understand the context of this psalm. Just like we did in Psalm 51 last week, Psalm 63 is just as important. David is now king, but he's a king who's on the run. He's a king who's in the desert. He's a king whose son, Absalom, would not just love his throne. He doesn't just want a bigger part in his father's kingdom. He wants his head. He wants to do away with him. He wants the throne and he wants David off it and he'll do anything to get his hands on the throne. And so David's in the wilderness and you can imagine a prayer to David praying to his God, the God of the Bible, and he would go something like this. I want your help. I realize I've made mistakes in my child rearing. You can see that because my son's after my life. Please will you help me, Father. Please will you help me, God. Please will you provide for me a nice, cool bottle of Evian or something like that. But what does he say? He says, verse 1, you are my God. That's the basis for the whole psalm. Verse 3, in the wilderness, in the desert, with cracked lips, with a, the best suntan you've ever seen, with windswept, sun-blanched hair, he says, you're my God. In verse 3, your love is better than life. He's fearing for his life, but he says, you are greater than my life. Knowing you is worth more to me than my life. I'd rather have you than water. I'd rather have you than my own life. When you know the God of the Bible intimately, personally, in a real way, when the truths of the gospel are screwed down hard into your heart so they can't budge, you see that knowing God is better than life itself. It's better than anything this world could give me. Better than a big house, smart car, great job, beautiful wife. Better than kids if you can't have them. Knowing God is better than life itself. You can give me all that this world has to offer. David would say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I've got all the honour I want. I've lost my throne, possibly. I've got all the safety I want in him eternally into the future, even if I lose my life. I just want to see... His power. I just want to see his glory. I just want to see more of him. I want to know him more personally, more intimately. Knowing you, verse 3, is better than life. It's better than life. You know, when you're in a crisis, we all do this. It's so easy to pray an eloquent prayer. Kids, do you do this? Something like this. I know I've not studied for my SATs exams, but if you could just get me through this, possibly with a 9 or an A, I'll owe you. Do you say something like that as an adult? If, you, if I could just get this job, Father, I know I've not been reading my Bible recently, but if I could just get this career, if this house move would just go really smoothly, I would owe you. I'd do anything for you. David doesn't say that at all. 
It's not if you're there, R-O-U. It's not if you, I know I've not been reading my Bible recently. I've not been great in rearing my son Absalom. I know he's after me. He said, I want to know more of you. If you want to get to know the God of the Bible, the place to begin is recognizing that God is not a genie in a lamp for us to pray to when we want something. He's transcendent. He rules over all. He's glorious. He's altogether lovely and precious. And he can be your God, verse 1. If you're a Christian, he's my God. He's our God. And he's worthy of enjoying and revering and honoring and knowing. Not for what you can get for him. Simply because of who he is. What's the one thing David asks for? I want to know more of you. I want to enjoy you. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, verse 1. I want to know more of you. It's the first thing you've got to do. If you want to know the God of the Bible, you've got to pursue him simply for who he is, not because of what you may want from him. He's an end. He's the end. And you only find rest when you find him. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. You need to know, if you're a Christian, knowing God is your right. If you're a Christian, in Christ Jesus, knowing God is your right. Where do I get that from? Look at this. David does not pray through his fingers. No, sometimes, boys and girls, you do that. God, if you're there, um, you kind of hedge your bets. David prays confidently. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. And the whole psalm is based on that. You're my God. Do you know how he's acting? Do you know how he's behaving? He's behaving like a, a son to a father. It's an intimate personal relationship. You are my God. I know you made the heavens and the earth. I know you've made promises. I know your steadfast love is greater than life. You've never let me down, but you are my God. You are my God and I'm pursuing you. So I got thinking about this this week and, and wondering how this might work and the relationship... Um, dads have with their kids, dads have with their sons and daughters. Why does David use this possessive pronoun, my? Why does he not just say, you are God? You know, blanket statement, that would also be true. Why does he say, you are my God, in verse 1? What's the big deal? I think because as any earthly parent will know, if you have children, they have a right on your time. They have a right on your resources. Sadly, sometimes in the middle of the night, they have a right to your bed and you kind of get pushed to the side. They have all these rights of access 24-7. Sometimes it can be a great joy. Sometimes it can be thoroughly inconvenient. But they say, you are my daddy. And only your kids can say that. And here's David saying, you are my God. And then I thought, how come children have a, a right on my time? How come my children have a right on my time, a right on my energies, a right on my warm bed? No, I'm not bitter. How does that work? Because in any relationship where there is a, a greater party and a lower party, a parent and a child, it's up for the parent to pay all the bills. It's up for the parents to, to have the obligation put upon them. And so a child can rightly say, with great joy and privilege, you're my dad. You're my mum. Please, can I have a glass of water? I know you're watching the telly. 
That's never happened to me. Please, can you do this for me? Because you're my dad. You've got an obligation to care for me. And that's what David is saying. David is saying, you are my God. I have an obligation, or you have an obligation to me, to care for me. Please, will you meet that obligation? No other religion is like this. The Buddhist cannot say to the all soul and say, you are my force. It doesn't work. A Muslim cannot say it. It would never work. Imagine a Muslim saying, you're my Allah. That would be irreverent. That would be heresy. It would never work. Allah is not someone who's obligated to anyone. But the gospel says, as David saw it from afar, as Jesus died on the cross, he tied himself to his people, willingly gave all of his majesty, as it were, to one side, took our sins upon his shoulders, and so now we can receive him. The Bible says when you receive Christ, when you receive his righteousness upon yourself, it's transferred to your account, all that is ours, our sin becomes his, all that is Christ become ours. Remarkable transaction. Maths that doesn't make sense, but the Bible says it's true. And so now when God looks upon you, if you're a Christian, there's no stain but holiness. There's no imperfection, there's righteousness. And so God can look upon us and say, because of the work of my son, I'm obligated to you. And that's what David's laying a hold of. We have claims on God. We have promises that we can say because of what Jesus has done. Father, please, treat us as we don't deserve. Just like a little child can say to their parents, I don't deserve it, I haven't earned it, but you're my mum, you're my dad. They can uh, put obligations upon us. And David walks to the front door, verse 1, and says, You are my God. Friends, what's your relationship with God like today? What's its spiritual temperature? How does verse 1 resonate with you? Do you revere God from afar? Your understanding of what it means to be a Christian is that God is remote and you salute him. Have you lost the understanding of the intimacy which David underlines in verse 1? You are my God. I can approach you because of Jesus. You feel remote. Please make your love new to me. Remind me of the great and precious promises that Jesus has won for me. It's awe and reverence twinned with intimacy and passion, longing to know more of who God is. You never truly experience intimacy with God until you see that it's only possible through Jesus Christ. You are my God. How dare we say that? Well, we say it because of what Jesus has done. And no other religion can say that. It's the transcendent God who became, who became close. And that's what Christmas is all about. Perhaps it, perhaps it won't fit on. Thirdly, this is for you teenagers, but it's from the Bible, so it's true. You will never understand the transcendent, great, almighty God unless you meditate in your bed meditate in your bed now this is a favorite verse of a teenager look at verse six on my bed i remember you i think of you through the watches of the night now we have a teenager in our home now because of a birthday 
And I think there's going to be an exponential increase in how much time is spent in bed. That's what happens in teenage years, apparently. I'm reliably informed. You can do all things in bed and you get up at midday. You stay up late, you get up late. That's the uh, way the teenage world works. What's David talking about in verse 6? That second word, think, is usually translated in the Bible, meditate. Meditate. And a lot of us Christians can say here this morning, well, I read my Bible. I uh, have what's called a quiet time, whether that's the uh, beginning, middle, or end of the day. I study the Bible. I read good Christian books. Um, I do those sort of things. That's not what David is talking about. He's talking about meditation. And that word really has been stolen from a lot of Christian thought because of a lot of nonsense that happens in other parts of the world. But David is saying, verse 6, My soul is clinging to you. I am thinking about the truths of the Bible like a log in the fire of my heart, and I'm thinking about it, and I'm stewing on it, and I'm not going to let it go, mixing my metaphors, until I've got all the meat off the bone. All the meat off the bone. I want it all. I want to think deeply about a promise of the Bible or a verse of the Bible. Meditation is not Bible study. Meditation is not prayer. Meditation fuels prayer. Meditation can often end up in prayer. But it's not one or t'other. Normally it's both. You can be there reading the Bible and suddenly a word sticks out, a truth sticks out and your heart just wants to stay there. And you start to think about it from different angles. You start to think about it from different perspectives. And you start to apply it to yourself as the Holy Spirit goes to work in your heart. And you say, am I doing this? Do I believe this? Do I know this? What does this mean? How should it affect how I live? And then that fuels prayer. So boys and girls, here are five for you. Here are five truths that you can meditate on. Five truths as adults you can remember. You can put them on your fingers. Perhaps draw a hand on your sheet. Here are five. Five truths to meditate on. Number one, God the Father. If you're a Christian, God the Father loves me. God the Son died for me. God the Holy Spirit lives in me. All things work for my good. That's the fourth one. Number five, I have a hope in heaven. Quickly again, God the Father loves me. God the Son dies for me. God the Holy Spirit lives in me. All things work for my good. And I have a hope of heaven. Here is what it means to be a Christian who takes verse 6 seriously. It's not about laying on your bed thinking nothing. It's an expression for David saying, when I get up, the first thing I want to do is think about you. I want to know you more personally. I want to enjoy you more. I want to understand you more. I want to understand what it means that I'm a son of God. I want to understand what it means that I'm an heir of eternity. I want to understand it that God loves me so much that he sent his only son to die for me. What does that mean? And then, and then David would go to work. So I'm a son of the king. Am I living that way? He's applying it. A king is going to come who's going to die for me. Perhaps the Holy Spirit revealed that to him. Do I understand that? Do I realize that? That's meditation that we can see in the whole revelation of the Bible. And I'm taking yourself through these truths and screwing it down because we're so forgetful that God the Father loved me. 
God the Son died for me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. All things work for my good. I have a hope of eternity because of Jesus. Paul says it in a different way in Colossians. He says, set your mind on things that are above. Boys and girls, another thing that you are brilliant at, this is a compliment, is nagging. When you are young, you are brilliant, boys and girls, at uh, following mum around. If she's wearing a skirt or trousers, you just pull at the hem until you get what you want. When you get older, you don't do that. It doesn't look so cool when you're a teenager or a tweenager. You start to use your words more. I want becomes I need. If you're really crafty, if you loved me, you would give me. You start to use phrases like that. It's nagging. Depending on how you do it, that can be thoroughly biblical. Isaiah 62 says, Christians should have the audacity, the courage, based on the promises of the Bible, quote, give God no rest. Give God no rest. You're not, not nagging for something you need. Your heart has come attuned, it's congruent with the promises of the Bible. And so you are saying, God, I want to stand on your promises. Please, for your glory, would you not do? That's how a Christian speaks. And that's what David's saying. He's going after God, verse 2. Your power and your glory and your love. I want it more than anything. Verse 8. My soul clings to you. In the morning I think about it, I start to seek it. At night I'm thinking about it as well. All the time, I seek it because I want you. I want to enjoy you more. I want to know you more. So that by the time we get to the end, verse 11, all those who swear by God's name will praise him. The king will rejoice in God. He feels it coming. The power of the Spirit in his heart. Let me uh, finish up, friends. A lot of you are busy. Some of you commute up to town. Some of you commute to different places as we go back to work, as autumn comes upon us. And the danger is that we think, when am I going to do this? Just don't think it's talking about duration of time. It's talking about quality. But it's talking about quality from a heart that is passionate to know more of God. Is that your passion? Is that anywhere Christian on your vocabulary? Non-Christian friend. If you want to get to know the God of the Bible... There's no better place than taking a few sentences, famous sentences, John chapter 3, verse 16, and just staying there and asking God, the God of the Bible, to reveal himself to you through it. No better thing than doing that. But as we start to think about going back to school, going back to work, going back to normal life, what do your friends in Epsom and Yule, what do they most need from you? How could you be a great friend who's committed to the word, who wants to build community and is on mission for Jesus in Epsom and Yule? What do they most need? There's a strange sentence in um, Zechariah chapter 8. It says this, In those days it will come to pass that ten men will take hold of the hem of you and say, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. We want to go with that man or that woman because I've heard that God is with them. What do your friends need most of all? How do we categorize our priorities in the day? If you or I want to reach out to people in Epsmanuel, if we want our friends and neighbors and work colleagues, wherever we may work, 
our retired friends, if we want to help them the most, if we want to witness to them about the power of the transforming power of Jesus in our lives the most, if you want to spread the gospel, how do you do that? That sentence is saying there needs to be something of Zechariah 8 about your friends. I want to go with that person because God is with them. I want to speak with that person at the water cooler because there is a calmness, there is a poise, there's a differentness about that person. I've heard that they may be something called a Christian. What do your kids need, most of all parents? The best thing that you can do for your children is that you would be a man and woman who knows God more. Boys and girls, what do you need as you start back to school shortly? You need to know God more, or even for the first time. What do your friends need most of all? They need for you to know God more and more of him. Don't say, how can I help them? David says, if you want to help them, go to the sanctuary. Be a person who's known for knowing God. There was a famous minister, Robert Murray McChaney, had a very short but uh, powerful ministry up in the church in Scotland. He said, the thing that my people need from me the most is not great sermons. The thing that my people need the most is my personal holiness. And it's not just pastors who can say that. What do your neighbours need the most? What do your friends need the most? What do your kids need the most? What do your work colleagues need the most? They need you to have the same appetite as David in Psalm 63, to say that you're my God, earnestly I seek you. They need you to be holy. So that Zechariah 8 could be said of you. We will, we will go to that person because we've heard that God is with them. They know the transcendent. They know the God who made the universe. And then you can say verse 5. My soul is satisfied with the riches of food, and with singing lips my mouth will praise you. Isn't it great if people could say that? Before uh, autumn and Christmas in that time, I found God, because God found me, because I realised that my friend was a Christian. And they had a different appetite to me and they weren't thirsty anymore. And God has transformed my life and now my soul is satisfied with the riches of food and my lips sing a new song because God has found me. Let's pray. Father, help us in the busyness of life to uh, grasp something of the passion and desires of King David who longed to know more of you. He thirsted for you more than his own safety, more than food itself. He longed to know you. May his experience be a little bit less remote than ours. When we're so worldly minded, help us please to be more concerned with knowing you and enjoying you forever, we pray. Amen.